Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Simone Riscala, and you are listening to the Endowed Podcast, a conversation not just about the feminine genius in general, but about cultivating your particular feminine genius through the Catholic intellectual tradition and intentional community. Well, hello, Endow Women. I'm here today with Professor Weidenkopf, Professor Stephen Weidenkopf, who is the author of Epic, A Journey Through Church History, which is an awesome program that your parish can use to study church history. And Professor, actually, before we get started today, because I would like to talk to you today about the Battle of Vienna, uh, that'll be our goal for the for the day for this podcast. Um, tell me a little bit about your work and your books and uh, Epic and I would love it. I would love endowed women to know about this and bring bring your programs to their parishes and their homes. So if you if you don't mind saying a few a few words about it, and also Professor Weidenkopf is also uh, has a history with Endow and has done some some editing and writing for us in the past. So um, thank you for all your good work uh, with Endow. Yeah. No. Thank you, Simone. Yeah. It's. Uh, um, I mean. As you mentioned, uh, you know, one thing that I, they developed several years ago is called Epic, A Journey Through Church History. It's a parish-based, you know, or even study-based program on church history where I go through all 2,000 years of church history and divide it up into different time periods, uh, and each 12 time periods, and each time period has a color associated with it, which is kind of a memory device, helps us, the, the color is associated with the main theme of what's happening. So, for example... Um, you know, the second time period is called persecution because it covers the time of the Roman Empire um, from the you know second century all the way to the fourth century when the church was being persecuted by the empire. And the color for that is red. So for the blood of the martyrs. So that kind of helps people, um, you know, remember the main theme of what's happening. Uh, and so it's it's a group. It's a study you can do as a group. You can do it um, individually as well. I know Ascension has who published it has everything up on their digital platform now as well. So awesome. Um, yeah. Used to be back in the day you'd gather in your parish and pre-COVID and all that <laughs> kind of stuff and you would actually see people and interact. But now it's it's all online so people can do it from the comfort of their homes whenever they want at their own pace. But uh, there's that there's two studies from that. There's the baseline study, which is the the full two thousand years, and then there's another study that I did that's related to it called uh, the early church study. Right. It only covers the first five hundred years. And uh, that was that was wonderful. Uh, parish in uh, in Northern Virginia, where you were employed at the time at St. Ambrose. Yes. It was so, filmed at my home parish where I was working, so that yeah. was really special. Yeah, so we had a great. That was a great setting, and and the taping went very well. So people can can get to study or watch the study, uh, which again just covers the first five hundred years. So it begins with the the very beginnings of the church and through all the ecumenical councils, the main ones that were very important in that time, and how the church impacted Western society and how the Roman Empire impacted the church. And so there's a lot of things, a lot of different great saints during those times as well. So. Um, and then in now I've actually started to write some books. So a couple of years ago, I wrote some books for Catholic Answers. I wrote a book on the Crusades. Um, I wrote a book on answering uh, anti-Catholic historical myths. Uh, so if so it's called needed. so needed, yeah, yeah. it's called the real story of of Catholic history. So I take fifty five different anti-Catholic myths that are related to historical myths about the Church's history, and then um, kind of peel back the onion of where these myths come from, and then refute them. Uh, and give people a, kind of a, a way in which to answer these myths when they when they are usually brought up in conversation. So, uh, and then I wrote uh, for our Sunday visitor that came out last year a one volume church history book uh, called Timeless: A History of the Catholic Church. 
And that's, um, again, just a, an easy to read narrative type of history that, that kind of covers the main events and main persons of church history. Yeah. Uh, well, then, I'll give you a, sh- a personal shout out. I, I put that in the high school senior theology curriculum. So they use Timeless for, for their senior year for studying church history and then the, um, the epic timeline. So the goal that you wanted to accomplish was to make church history accessible to everyday Catholics uh, through the timeline, through, you know, is, is successful in high school. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. And it may it certainly, certainly um, being taught by you was essential in being able to teach uh, high school church history for me. So I'm very personally grateful to you for that. But so just a shout out for any church history teachers out there that are looking for great resources in addition to those of you who are at parishes and just in your homes that want to finally learn church history in a way that it can, can is doable. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. So go, yeah. So, and then just to finish up, I mean, briefly I have a book, a new book coming out at the end of this year um, called uh, the church in the middle ages. So it's part of a series that uh, Ave Maria press is doing on uh, it's called reclaiming Catholic history. So they have six different volumes that are coming out on, basically just teaching history from a Catholic perspective. So I wrote the one on the Middle Ages and I cover all the hot topics in the Middle Ages, the Crusades, the Inquisition, and all these kinds of things. So so people can look for that when it comes out at the end of this year. Oh, that's great. Good, really good stuff. I recommend them all the time and have been really, really helped by them. So today uh, we are going to talk about the Battle of Vienna. And last summer, thank God it was before a global pandemic, uh, <laughs> I was in Babel Cathedral, and there's this beautiful, beautiful, um, I don't know even what to call it, because it's not a painting, it's, it's, it's a metal sculpture type thing mm-hmm. of the Battle of Vienna, and I was so grateful to know what it was about, and had my Sobieski vodka later that day, and and uh, so I would love uh, for all the endowed women that are not aware of the significance of this battle to to be exposed to it. So take it away. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So it's great to at least uh, Young Sobieski himself would be proud of your your vodka shot there. At the end of the <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's more Catholic? Wait, can I tell a very funny story? This is so funny. I was out with a friend. I won't call it a date. That's too personal. But. Um, he said, I'll pay for dinner if you can tell me what uh, vodka is named after an important key player in the Battle of Vienna. Isn't that the most obnoxious Catholic dating story yeah. you've ever heard? But yeah. I actually knew the answer. <laughs> dinner was on him. Continue. <laughs> well, you know, like you said, I mean, most, most people, at least who are Polish, would know this story of the Battle of Vienna. Sadly, people who aren't Polish, even most Catholics, don't know what happened here at the end of the 17th century in Vienna. But again, to kind of set the stage here, um, you know, this is at the end of the 17th century. Uh, you have the, the Ottoman Turks have made great inroads right over the last several centuries into Eastern Europe. Uh, they have, have, um, the, the Habsburgs who are in control of, of Austria in, in that area, that the whole um, central part of Europe has entered into a peace treaty with the Turks, uh, that's set to expire in 1684. And the reason why they were kind of uh, negotiating with the Turks to a diplomatic solution is because they were more concerned actually with the French. 
um, with King Louis and King Louis the Fourteenth and his vast um, standing army that he was creating. And so the focus uh, from the Habsburgs, at least at this particular period of time, happened to be more west than it was east. So because of that, the Turks knew this, the Turks decided that in 1683, they should invade um, into Austrian territory um, because they would never expect it. So there was one grand vizier in the Turkish Empire known as Kara Mustaf, who went to Mehmed IV, who was the sultan at the time, to ask him uh, to approve this military invasion, to go to Vienna, conquer capital of Vienna, which has is really the gateway to Europe. I mean, if you capture, it's very strategic, right? You capture Vienna, you have the waterway, the Danube, you have all these, the ability to move forces throughout Central Europe and then even get into Western Europe and, and really kind of put a dagger in the heart of, of Europe itself if you're able to capture the city. The Turks had brought an army to Vienna before in the 16th century in 59. And, but were beaten back. So this is this is a, a target that they've had in their sights before. But now they're in a position of great strength. And so they decide to launch this invasion at the end of the 17th century. And Karl Mustaf is a very interesting guy. He's the military leader from the Turks on this campaign. He was very anti-Christian. He disliked Christians intensely. Uh, when they launched the invasion, they this wasn't just about Vienna. This was about the eradication of Christian Europe, right? He bragged that he would stable his horses in the, in the Basilica of St. Rome. Um, that was his focus. Yep. So he, uh, he decided to launch the invasion. Uh, they went into Austrian territory. They were able to get to the, the city gates of Vienna, and they surrounded the city. Uh, now, the Habsburgs, think that this day might happen, eventually, did enter into some defensive treaties with other Christian powers, that if they were invaded, then these other Christian powers, true, Christian power that engaged in this or entered into this defensive treaty with the Habsburgs was Jan Sobieski, the king of Poland. So when the Turks came across the border, that triggered the defensive alliance. Word gets back to Poland, to Sobieski, that the Turks had invaded, they're surrounding Vienna. And he follows through on his defensive obligations. A lot of Christian powers didn't. Um, many of them just said, well, the Austrians are on their own. Uh, many German principalities sent troops. Uh, but it was the main European ruler who answered the call was the king of Poland, Jan Sobieski. So he marshals his forces. He actually stops at, at the shrine of Our Lady of Czestochowa before he leaves Polish territory uh, to pray, to ask Our Lady for, for victory in the upcoming struggle. And he marshes his, his forces. They eventually arrive on the outskirts of Vienna uh, at the beginning of September, end of, end of August, beginning of September of 1683. Um, and miraculously, had not posted centuries, um, you know, outlying centuries to see if in Christian army. So they had no intelligence that this Christian army was coming at all. Um, which was a huge mistake on their part. But Karl Mustafa was very uh, convinced that he would be able to easily win this battle. Uh, he began to starve the defenders out. By the time we, when he gets there in July to now at the end of August and September, supplies in the city had run low for food. Uh, there were water shortages. Uh, people were dying of, of you know, disease and starvation. Uh, the defenders of the city had taken many casualties. So it was really, the city was on the cusp of falling when Sobieski arrives. And so he comes, and uh, on September 11th, 1683, uh, he launches his attack. 
uh, against the Turks, and he unleashes his winged hussars, this these um, uh, you know special elite cavalry force uh, who used to wear these these kind of large wings on their backs that made this really terrible sound that, that freaked their enemies out when they came charging at them. If, if the sound of like several hundred horses or thousands of horses wouldn't scare you to death, they had to add, you know, shrieking winged sounds, uh, you know, shrieking aerial sounds as well. So this was a, you know, a, a very uh, fearsome sight coming at you. Um, and Sobieski was able to be successful. He, you know, the fighting was actually very intense. There was actually a moment in the battle where both sides kind of stopped. Uh, it was very hot that day, uh, the sources record. And so the men were exhausted on both sides. And they actually took a bit of a pause for a few hours. Then they started up again. Um, and eventually the Poles were able to bust through the Turkish line and they get into the city uh, and spare the, the city of Vienna. And, and it said that when Sobieski get, got into the city, he sent a letter to the Pope, um, who had given everyone, who all the Christian forces who had participated in this battle, uh, a the plenary indulgence for participating in a crusade. This was kind of the last crusade, if you will, in a certain sense. Um, but it said to Sobieski, in writing a letter to the Pope, he said, uh, I came, I saw, and God conquered. Mm. Uh, kind of twisting that that phrase from from Caesar, uh, when he invaded Gaul back in the you know ancient history, that I came, I saw, I conquered. So he gave, he gave obviously Christianized he, it. He Christianized it. Yeah, he gave glory to God, not to himself, right? For, <laughs> for the victory, <laughs> unlike Caesar, who we'll wasn't Christian, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, uh, so the Turks, uh, you know, are defeated here in Vienna. Uh, they're beaten back. Eventually, there's a, a further campaign which will will take them out of uh, Habsburg imperial territory. And eventually they'll lose their, their empire at the early century um, when they back the Germans in the First World War and through the Treaty of Versailles whatnot, their empire is destroyed. And that really, so Vienna is in a certain sense, kind of the, almost the, the high watermark, if you will, of the Ottoman Turkish expansion into Europe. And then it, it, uh, it, their, their, their defeat there rather really solidifies the end of their empire. I mean, it would take a while to happen, but that's eventually the high, high point. And so fascinating. Why is it so important for Catholics to know their history? Why does this battle that you know, took place centuries ago, why does it matter that we know it and, and celebrate it? And I have to also ask the obvious question about um, about the intentionality of, of the date of 9-11. So if you don't mind commenting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, well, the, um, well, so it's important for us to know our history, obviously, because if we, if we don't know, you know, the why, if we don't understand the story of those who've come before us and it's hard for us to, to have a sense of, of um, identity, to have a sense of, of purpose, even in our church. I mean, there, you know, we, we have, we have the sacraments, obviously we have grace. All these things are obviously essential and important. Um, but, but there's our, our faith is so enriched by the men and women who have come before us, right? Incarnational aspect to our faith. Our faith is not just something that's, that's um, you know, in the invisible realm. It's, there's a visible aspect to our faith and our, and history is a part of that visible aspect of faith. Um, and it helps us we study church history. It helps us to trust more in the Holy spirit, frankly, to know that even when things seem um, at their worst, when, when there's problems in the church or there's problems in the world, or if you're, you're the citizens of Vienna in the 17th century and you, you know, you think that, that the world's coming to an end because your world is coming to an end. The Turks are going to come through the gates and 
you might be killed, you might live under sub subjection, you might have to convert to Islam, you know, all these things that could happen to you. But in a miraculous way, at the very last possible moment, which seems to be kind of God's operating principle, <laughs> you know, the, the poles come and, and through, through them, God saves the city, right, and saves Christendom. Uh, and saves uh, Christian Europe first in a certain sense. Um, so we can take solace from that, right? We can take solace from learning of these different events, and and it ties us into our our, uh, our liturgical calendar because many of these battles actually are commemorated by feast days. Mm -hmm. um, it helps remind us of the role of Our Lady in salvation history as well. Um, and it's again something that we can we can take not just and see it in the past as if okay, well that was nice that happened however many centuries ago. But to take what happened in the past and apply it to the present, um, and again, be emboldened to be proud of our Catholic faith, to be uh, proud of our church. Um, and so when people attack it, to defend the church and to point to the things that, that the church has done well, that people have done well, not ignoring uh, you know, the difficult times and the bad times in church history or the actions of the men and women who came before us who were not so virtuous. Right. Uh, we can't ignore that. We can't just, you know, just wash that away. We have to embrace it, understand it, and explain it. But then it helps us to defend our faith as well against those who attack it. Yeah, and it gives us it gives a sense of urgency um, in that there are spiritual forces that are dark and that are against us, and these play out actually in in the public square. And so the the political, the cultural, the civil, the spiritual, it's all integrated and we can't parcel them out like they're not related to each other. Um, but I agree. I, I love what you said about history being a consolation because you see out oh, there were terrible people back then. They're in our church. There are terrible people now, and, but they're also, they're also saints along with the sinners that we can be inspired by. And hopefully that we are, um, as you said, also protecting and defending our faith and, and um, fulfilling Christ's commandment to make disciples of all nations. So um, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing about the Battle of Vienna. And um, I really hope a lot of endowed women listening will uh, pick up Timeless or, or one of your other books uh, or the um, the epic A Journey Through Church History series. I, I think it's so, so helpful and inspiring. And, um, you know, history, you know, is it Mark Twain that said history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's usually ascribed to him. I'm not certain if he actually did say it or not. Yeah, yeah it's it's. But it's, that, true. I mean, it's yeah, there there are rhythms in history. It's not it's not a repetitive cycle, right? We as as Christians don't see history as as kind of a never repeating, a never ending cycle of repetitive events. It's it's linear, right? There's a beginning to right. history creation. There's an end, or right? the second the coming again of Christ. Um, and we know that God is operative in history, right? He just doesn't leave us on our own. He he intercedes. Uh, for us, you know, through the saints, through Our Lady, um, through just grace and, and other things that happen and, and the good decisions of, of you know, free willed creatures um, operating with his grace. But, um, it you know, it brings a, a sense of, of, like you said, purpose to our, our life as Catholics to know our history. And, and we can't, you know, just like we would try to study our own family histories and know, you know, who was my my grandmother, my, you know, my great my ancestors, where do they come from? What's what's my story? That's that's what we do when we study church history. Is we're learning our story as Catholics. So. Right, right. Oh, and that that point about nine eleven is that oh, as yeah. a, as a as a um, daughter of Armenian Egyptian immigrants, <laughs> um, you know, I grew up 
waiting for something like 9-11 as a child, which is such a weird thing to say out loud. And I, I get kind of shamey about it, but like that, that, that's a real experience of, a, a, um, you know, someone who comes from a family that was raised in what used to be predominantly Christian territory, but which was invaded and taken. So, you know, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is real. And, and, you know, there are dates that, that, uh, you know, I mean, we, they, this great battle of, Zip- of uh, Vienna happens on September 11th. Back in the 16th century, there was uh, the relief of Malta. The, the, the island of Malta was under siege by the Turks as well. And on September 11th, 16, or 1565, the Spanish relief force arrives on Malta and saves the day as well. So um, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, this is my personal opinion, but I don't think it was, um, you know, just a, a random day on the calendar that was chosen for the, what uh, Osama bin Laden did in, in 2001. So I think that he yeah. knew his history and, and those dates were important in the Islamic world. So, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today and look forward to having you as a guest in future episodes, because I think church history, as I've mentioned, and we'll just keep saying, I think it's, it's very, very important as we um, rebuild uh, what was once a great <laughs> civilization. <laughs> Thank you, That's Professor. Cool. My pleasure. Thanks so much. If this episode was helpful for you, I would love it if you'd share it with your friends. I would also love to hear your comments and feedback, so please email me at simone.riscala at endowgroups.org or feel free to reach out to us on any of our social media platforms. Remember, you are the heart of Endow.